Welcome to Cinema Journal Presents ACA Media. I am Christine Becker. And I'm Michael Kackman. And I'm a little bit in a daze right now with all of the election stuff circulating around us. It's it's hard to know what to think anymore. Yeah. I'm not sure that thinking is even really what it's all about anymore. Yeah, maybe you were actually making a mistake here by starting an ACA Media special series. We've got a three-parter coming up for you where we wanted to ask media studies scholars what kind of sense they can make of this election season. Yeah, maybe that whole sense-making impulse is a little off target. Yeah, I don't know. So Maybe we'll, we should just have people like uh, do interviews and have them emote. Uh, they could just scream or cry. Or, oh, I like that idea. Sort of an audio version of an emoji. Yeah. Then people could play it at times of need. Yeah. Trying to rationalize this and explain this whole business is yeah rather fraught. So, so if anybody wants to just kind of chime in with a with a um, a raw guttural emotional reaction i'm sure that that counts as criticism at this point i think it does um so i really admire the three scholars who have agreed to this attempt good sports, to, all. Good sports yeah so we've got chuck tryon uh coming up in this episode he's trying to make sense of the political campaign for us uh in the wake of his book political tv Next episode, Bill Kirkpatrick is going to bring us an, inter- an interview from Denison University where he talked to his colleague Sanjeet Kumar. Um, he does work on news parody and political satire around the globe. And then finally, close to home. Very close to home. We've got our colleague Susan Omer here in the Department of Film, Television, Theater at Notre Dame. She's teaching a class right now. Called- Two of them, I think, Two- actually. Well, well, at least yeah. one called Media and the Presidency. Um, oh, that's right, because she's got she's yeah, got like she's, a freshman. Yeah, class, she's doing right? a freshman seminar on the on the presidency and elections, and then a and then a um, more of a senior seminar kind of. Oh, thing. I can't wait to ask her about that about yeah. the, like the little puppy freshmen and what they think of this, and then the jaded seniors. Yeah, and, and especially have that scope of of uh, media studies uh, curriculum behind them. So so she's going to tell us about that teaching that class, and then also she's going to give us a historical perspective because in that class she goes all the way back to you know nineteenth century to talk about campaigns and debates and so forth. So she's going to tell us how, even though this seems like this is the craziest thing and none of this has ever happened, in fact, there are precedents. There so, are. Yeah. There are. So you can look forward to that next uh, three episodes, including this one. We'll see what comes out of this. We will. We will. All right. So why don't we give a listen to your conversation with Chuck? Here we go. Chuck Tryon is an associate professor of English at Fayetteville State University and the author of three books, Reinventing Cinema, Movies in the Age of Media Convergence from 2009, On Demand Culture, Digital Distribution, the Future of Movies from 2013, and most recently published this year, Political TV, which is part of Rutledge's TV guidebook series. He has also published essays in Screen, the Journal of Film and Video, and Popular Communication, and he's got an essay on political memes recently for theweek.com. Welcome to the Acomedia Podcast, Chuck. Oh, thanks for uh, inviting me to be on. We're really excited to have you here, especially because of your recent book, Political TV. And anyone who works on contemporary topics has probably confronted this, where you have a deadline, you have to get the manuscript in, but life and the topic keeps unfolding. And so something comes along where you're like, oh, if only I could have covered that too. So I'm wondering if you're feeling any of that with this quite stunning presidential election campaign going on. And if you are, what do you think your chapter on this year's campaign and TV's coverage of it would have been about? Oh, my gosh. Every single week, I I think here's another story or another chapter or another segment. Um, I actually um, begged my editor at Routledge and they graciously agreed to let me extend my deadline by one week so that I could watch the very first Fox News debate with uh, with Donald Trump. And it was the one where Trump was singled out for having at that time not pledged to support the Republican nominee. And he goes after Megyn Kelly the next day in the media. And 
I think it actually did allow me to see, okay, this is the tone of his campaign. And so I was able to anticipate to some extent that he would pick fights with Fox News. I was able to anticipate his uh, depiction of illegal immigration and some of those sorts of things. But, you know, every week there was another story like the conventions. But if I had more that I could say, I mean, one thing that I would love to talk about is the mainstream media's ambivalence about Trump. You know, there was this genuine recognition from the very beginning that he was having this terrible effect on the political process. You know, Scarborough, Joe Scarborough for from the Morning Joe show sort of got criticized for fluffing up Trump, but I don't think he was. I mean, I think he was very critical of him from the beginning, but was acknowledging him as a phenomenon. But, um, you know, he was one of the first people to criticize him for attacking John McCain and some of the other things. At the same time, they couldn't resist having Trump on their shows because he brought huge ratings. And so I'd want to talk more about that. Um, I'd actually want to talk a little bit and I'm not sure how about the Bernie Sanders campaign, which now seems to have completely faded from memory. But, you know, it was this massive phenomenon. And, and a lot of it was not televisual in the same sense that Trump is, but worth talking about. Um, I would probably be a little bit more pessimistic about political satire. It seems that Trump is almost satire proof. And the most powerful voices within that field have not been as vital this time around. Um, so, you know, those are a lot of the different things. Um, one thing I'm still keeping an eye on is how political advertising is going to play out. You know, Trump has fundraised in a much different way than other candidates and has spent significantly less money on advertising. And, you know, the question of whether his strategy of essentially writing free media will succeed is is kind of an inter interesting and big question. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of be curious to see how some of those things play out, you know, but I mean, the whole Trump thing could write another book. So, <laughs> Well, I bet there's so many circumstances that have come up where we think just this seems different, right? This seems to kind of change our models of what we had, of what we thought of how things traditionally went. And especially like even today, we're talking today on the day that Trump uh, flew down to Mexico to meet with Mexico's president. You mentioned like things changing day to day. We even have things changing minute to minute where he comes out and says, well, we didn't discuss paying for the wall. And then the president, I think it was in a tweet maybe, then tweets like, yeah, we did. And I said, I wasn't going to pay for it. Like, these it's just like dizzying how quickly all this stuff is happening and i wonder how do we make sense of all that when we're steeped in this and all this is changing so quickly how do we find ground or do we the problem is i mean there's often very little common ground and uh you know what is interesting is it's it's not as hardly determined um, Republican Democrat this time i think some of my republican friends from high school and college recognize that Trump has been remarkably dishonest in some of what he said. And so it's it's not right-left, it's kind of hardcore Trumpist versus anti-Trumpist. Um, but the kind of echo chamber phenomenon that Cass Sunstein talked about years ago is, is certainly playing out again through social media, through niche cable news and all of these other phenomena. So it's definitely still there. Um, I think the historical perspective that some people have offered linking Trump's campaign to Nixon's in, in very specific ways has been really valuable as well. So it's not entirely new, but, you know, I think there are things about it, like the pace at which new controversies emerge, you know, it's, it's almost overwhelmed the system in, in some ways. What do you see as the key continuities? Because, you know, you speak to especially that idea of there's this notion of that, that we're living in different worlds, right? That we're living in different realities even. And I've, I've seen maybe many people speak of that as sort of an internet age kind of factor where we're all only going to particular websites that feed our own beliefs. Um, or just, I mean, the very fact that Trump's campaign is now being led by the head of Breitbart, one of the conspiracy theory led kind of sites is just stunning. So that kind of stuff seems new. But what what are some of the continuities with the past that you see happening? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the the degree to which this has been mainstreamed is is very new. And I was going to mention, you know, the, the Breitbart phenomenon and the ways in which Trump has traded in conspiracy theories as the leader of the party or the nominal leader of the party is is kind of stunning. And, and the degree to which someone who was so outside the mainstream of the party 
being able to essentially take over at least, uh, you know, the executive part of the party, the the presidential nomination. Yeah, I mean, that's completely new. I mean, I think the echo chamber aspects, there's some continuity there. Um, I think that there's still some bias toward false equivalents. Um, you know, there was this, oh, there is this desperation, I think, to attach Clinton to every possible scandal that they can find. And, you know, one example that um, fortunately didn't seem to last long was the idea that Bannon's history of possibly being abusive toward his wife and being anti-Semitic was somehow equivalent to Anthony Weiner sexting a photo. And, you know, obviously there are massive differences, one of them being that Anthony Weiner is not officially involved in the Clinton campaign. Um, but this this intense pressure to uh, create false equivalents still seems to persist to some extent. Although, again, I think we're seeing a little bit of pushback from that. Um, you know, we're seeing uh, CNN and MSNBC in particular fact-checking Trump more or less in real time in chirons and other kind of uh, visual materials to to say that he's claiming this, but it's not true. And so there are these kind of moments of pushback against Trump in a way that I, I don't think I've seen with past candidates. Obviously, it's all very much ratings driven, the desire to create drama, to create suspense, to keep the race tight. I mean, that seems to be an underlying motivation for a lot of the um, discussion of the race. So, you know, there are some significant continuities, but, you know, I think the mainstreaming of the alt-right phenomenon, as, as the phrase has kind of come out, has uh, been really eye-opening and I think really significantly different than what we've seen in the recent past. I mean, certainly, you know, Romney, and Bush and others didn't specifically court those those voters in, in the way that Trump has. Well, there also seems like, and again, I think it's like both a continuity with the past, but there's some sort of new spin on it, that idea of the liberal media, right? The Or the lamestream media and how it's biased against conservatives. And so that has been ramped up and to even disturbing levels as far as when you see some of the attacks on the media um, and the vitriol directed toward the press at some of Trump's rallies. But you also have some of that frustration coming from the left. And we seem to be in this period, and especially as a, a media studies scholar, where we've been talking for years about how problematic, for instance, 24-hour cable news is, and especially being driven by ratings and money. And it's just, it seems like kind of a quagmire and a mess in, in, the, uh, in the press right now. How do you think the... How do you think the news media is dealing with all of this and the, the state of their profession? Um, you know, I, I, I follow a lot of the kind of pundits on Twitter. And I, I think to, to some extent, some of them like Chris Saliza feel that pushback a little bit and sort of try to respond to it. Um, yeah, I mean, I you know, I think the others who aren't as, you know, other political writers who aren't as attached to cable news like Matthew Iglesias and some others have been describing this particular election as like the political dumpster fire of, of cable news. And that seems apt to me in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously, the ratings-driven aspects of it, the fact that we have specifically Fox, which is, is very much niche-driven and stokes conservative fears in, in very powerful ways. Uh, MSNBC does that to a different and I think significantly lesser extent. Um, they seem to kind of back down in various places from certainly uh, anything remotely far left. I mean, Melissa Harris Perry, I believe, was um, more or less driven out because of her political stances on uh, some issues and things like that. But um, it's been an election that I think really has called attention to the the failures and the limitations of cable news in so many ways. Well, and then it's like mind blowing when you stop and think about all these things, because then you have the Roger Ailes situation at Fox News, right? One of the most successful television executives, probably arguably in history, and who put Fox News into this incredible, you know, pinnacle of cable television and is now out. What do you think comes next for Fox News in all of this? You know, I, I think that 
one, I mean, his place as the crafter of Fox's messaging is going to be very difficult to replace. Um, and, you know, I, I get the impression he had a very heavy handed role in establishing the the key phrases and the, the language of the day in terms of making conservative attacks. Um, Derek Thompson had a really interesting piece in The Atlantic this week claiming that they're reaching a twilight phase in some ways. And, you know, there are several pieces of evidence that I find very convincing. One, cable subscriptions are down considerably. People are cutting the cord or we have the cord nevers. And I think the election ratings bubble will probably burst on November 9th. Although, you know, if, if Trump claims that the election was rigged, if he loses, that might keep things going. But, you know, he also makes the point that Fox has a relatively old male audience. Um, the median age of the Fox News viewer is 68. MSNBC and CNN are both around 60. Bill O'Reilly's hinted that he may soon retire. And I don't know that they have, I mean, I think Megyn Kelly and Sean Hannity have a certain level of stardom, but I don't think they have the same uh, authority that O'Reilly does. So I'll be interested to see what happens there. I think Fox News could look somewhat different in five years. Uh, that being said, they still have the largest audience right now of any cable channel. I think they're, if I read correctly, they're even ahead of ESPN. They certainly dominate the cable news market. And I actually also did some digging and found that the median age of Fox News viewers actually is consistently stayed around 68 for something like four or five years. I think it went back to about 2008. And um, so, you know, I wonder if what's happening is people are retiring and staying home. And because of the liveness of Fox News and because they're older, conservative male audience members, um, they're kind of getting sucked in as they retire to, to watching Fox News all day. Um, and you know, Jeffrey Jones has talked quite a bit about how uh, Fox News cultivates community through their programming, through shows that kind of make the viewer feel like they're part of the the community, for lack of a better term, of, of Fox News. And, and so I, I think that probably becomes attractive to older men who are now home from work. And so, I, you know, it could go on for a, a somewhat longer time. It could change dramatically, but I think Ailes stepping down, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, especially once the election's over and um, the network needs a fairly consistent voice. Do you buy any of the talk that there would be a possibility of Trump starting his own TV or news venture of some sort if, let's say, if he doesn't win the presidency? Yeah, it's an attractive argument. And for you know all of the obvious reasons that Trump has surrounded himself with so many people who have a history in television or who have a history in alt-right media. And I could see a melding of Breitbart's news empire, uh, if you want to call it news, uh, with a cable channel. And I have read suggestions that it would likely entail obtaining or working with an existing cable channel rather than creating a new one because of the, the expense involved in, in doing that. And I don't know. I mean, he's, he's got that ready-made audience. I, it's a difficult thing to answer. I mean, I, I can't read Trump's motivations. Um, it's probably a good thing. I don't think anyone can, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but um, after the election, assuming he loses, I mean, he, he does have this core group of believers who show up at his rallies, um, who um, very strongly support him almost no matter what he says or does. And, you know, it, it's it's a fairly significant demographic that, that he can tap into. Well, and certainly, yeah, that notion, if, if we're in an era of, of niche targeting, he's got a heck of a niche now and a very passionate one and, and in some ways a disturbing one, on especially to the fringes of it, or maybe it's even in the center of it. So, you know, it, that especially seems like that's unfortunately not going to go away and we'll have to see the consequences of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I to see that he was able to essentially, again, hijack the um, Republican nomination. And, it's, you know, it's a, a large audience, one that obviously is steeped in a lot of anger and a lot of other values that are kind of disturbing and upsetting. And that group does not appear to be going away um, anytime soon. So, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see if they coalesce around any kind of media. It does seem like many of them are ready to be picked off from Fox News, though. That's one thing, you know, with Trump's fights against Megyn Kelly and even to some extent Bill O'Reilly, I think there's some antagonism. 
that crowd, I think, could very easily be directed toward other media sources. Well, and earlier you brought up satire and the idea that it's almost as if we don't have satire anymore. We just have reality, which seems, you know, satirical in and of itself. So, and there have been a number of think pieces saying, for instance, you know, it's clear the Daily Show, Jon Stewart was a failure because he didn't forestall any of this stuff happening. What do you think about the state of, and I guess specifically kind of late night comedy, which has had some really interesting stuff going on this year? Um, so first of all, do you, what do you think about the role of satire and late night comedy in this campaign? And then who do you think is going to come out of this maybe in a stronger position? I've heard a lot of people talk about Sam B. John Oliver comes to, to mind. So what do you think about the state of satire through all this? The Stuart Colbert block was so powerful in part because liberal audiences, when when they emerged as these powerful voices, um, liberal audiences, I think, felt estranged from certainly politics because uh, we were watching Bush lead us into a war in Iraq that didn't have any real basis in, uh, I mean, the, the evidence of weapons of mass destruction weren't there. And so many people were outraged by that. And Jon Stewart and Colbert and fairly different ways gave voice to that outrage and provided at least a point of identification. Uh, I recall that at least one piece talking about the Stuart Colbert satire as failing. And I, you know, I don't think that's fair to them in a lot of ways. I think they did provide for a, a large group of people models for new, new modes of media literacy, new modes of new ways of thinking about messaging and ensure conservatives and Fox News viewers are going to hate Jon Stewart because of that or are going to dislike Colbert. But I think, again, modeling some of those practices of, uh, as Stewart himself said in the final episode, detecting the bullshit, that is a valuable skill. And obviously, in very different ways, many of us try to model that in our media studies classes. We try to teach ways of looking at techniques of framing, for example, um, you know, and, and some of, I mean, you go back to Stuart Hall and people like that and talking about how they help to make us aware of the the kind of tropes of, of news broadcasting. And, and I think Stuart did that in a very different way. So I didn't have a lot of sympathy for that argument of, about him being a failure. That being said, to ask a comedian to be the person to, to fix the American media system is too daunting of a task by itself. I mean, you can't ask Stewart to be the one person like to fix everything. It just doesn't work. You know, so the current state is um, the those two voices were so powerful that I, I think it's going to be difficult for any one single figure to kind of assume their their mantle. Um, and, and it was a lot to ask of Trevor Noah, who is a non-U.S. citizen, or at least was not born in the U.S., um, who's younger, to, to really step into that role so quickly. And so I've sort of come around to being fairly patient with him and the expectation that he can grow more deeply into that role. I was disappointed that Larry Wilmore didn't get a chance to really polish his show off. I think... Um, you know, he was trying something very different with the uh, the panel format. You know, it was sort of like what Bill Maher was doing, but in a much more condensed format and also four or five days a week, unlike Bill Maher, which was once a week. So there were just so many challenges with that. But um, he also was one of the most significant voices talking about Black Lives Matter, talking about some of the policing issues. And, and, you know, I feel like that's sort of being lost right now. The current voices, I agree that Sam B has been really impressive in talking about these issues. Again, um, doing this once a week, doing it on TBS, which I, I, is not a go-to source in the same way that Comedy Central seemed to be, has kept her, I think, from resonating as much as I would like, given some of the messages of, of her uh, clips. But both she and Oliver still are attracting fairly significant audiences. I happened to watch a couple of John Oliver clips today, and he's still getting five, six, even 10 million viewers for some of his uh, HBO clips. And that's outside of his HBO audience. So that's a fairly significant number. Um, it, granted, it doesn't register in the ratings in the same way that a Walter Cronkite might have, but he's still being viewed by a large number of people. And... Um, 
what impact that might be having on the issues that he's talking about, you know, again, is less than clear. I mean, he's a comedian who can highlight a cause or an issue. How much he alone can change it is a, is a whole nother question. Mm-hmm. When, I want to pick back up on something you said about Jon Stewart, about kind of leaving us with models of analysis and critique. And it makes me think of you just recently published a piece about memes, political memes in this political season. And there's, it seems like an extent to which we, the people are taking up some of those models and making image macros out of them. And those are going viral is that something you see as part of like playing a role in this political campaign as well? The sort of grassroots isn't the right word, but the idea of like someone being able to at the computer create something that goes viral and other people get to see, you know, in, in ways that are critiques somewhat like the kind of thing John Stewart would do of like playing a clip and putting a funny caption on it or something like that. Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, I, I um, wrote that initially responding largely to the uh, the meme around Kaiser Khan's uh, speech at the Democratic National Convention, where he talked directly to Trump and addressed him and said, you have sacrificed nothing. And that was the central quote that, that got picked up by a lot of people. And Trump responded to it uh, in a very ham-handed way about, oh, I sacrificed by creating jobs or something really absurd. And and so immediately after that, there was the Trump sacrifices meme. And, you know, it circulated quite a bit and kept going for a couple of days. I followed it pretty closely. And I, I think that's certainly one example. But many of the political memes actually do call attention to not just political uh, mis- mistakes by politicians, but also, I think, the failures of the news media to cover things adequately. And so, yeah, I think that there's a generation of internet activists who grew up watching Jon Stewart and an image macro requires almost no learning curve whatsoever. And they can put one of those together and have a powerful impact. Um, And it's often a very collective one because once a meme starts, you know, obviously hundreds of other people join in. And so that's, you know, that's one thing that sort of makes me optimistic, but at the same time, you know, the alt-right has its own memes. And um, one of the really awful ones was the Hillary Stools meme that was linked to the conspiracy theory that she is in physically poor health. And that's why she always has a stool at every speaking event that she attends. Uh, You know, it, it was an incredibly ugly meme, one that seemed to imply that people with any disability whatsoever would be incapable of being president. And, you know, we can obviously point back to FDR and say, hey, wait a minute, there was um, precedent for this. But uh, even so, it, it's it's very uh, anti-disability. And, um, you know, I think there are gendered aspects to it and a number of other problems. So, you know, I'm amb- somewhat ambivalent about social media, but I, I think at its best, there are these moments where people are picking up the mantle of uh, Jon Stewart and Colbert and others that were able to embody or emulate these these kind of uh, media critiques. When it seems like any positive we might find out, then suddenly you're like, oh yeah, but, and then here's a negative, which <laughs> seems to also kind of define 2016 in general. Um, one last thing I want to ask about, because your book also tackles scripted television and shows like Scandal and Veep that deal in the political world. So I'm curious if you see anything going forward of scripted television taking up anything from this year's events. I mean, so many of the things are so outlandish. You almost think you'd be in a writer's room and say, well, no, we can't do that. That's too off the wall. And yet it's happening in reality. So do you see anything forthcoming in uh, either shows currently on the air or new shows coming up that could somehow grow out of what we've seen happen over the past year? I am a little bit behind on Veep, but I, I do think that it's it's done a few things to comment on some of the absurdities of the uh, electoral process. I'll be very interested if Hillary gets elected to see how shows that are structured around the ideas of female political power address that. Uh, I mean, even thinking of things like Madam Secretary, where Taya Leone's gender seems to play this really interesting role. And the showrunners have explicitly said that she wasn't directly based on uh, Hillary Clinton, but there still seems to be some commentary on women in political power. Uh, House of Cards obviously has this kind of hint that uh, Robin Wright's character, you know, may enter the 
or is entering the political fray. Scandal is doing things with female political power. So I'll be very interested to see how those shows deal with that if, if Hillary gets elected. Um, you know, I anticipate that HBO will probably do some kind of docudrama about this election in, in some form on the model of uh, Game Change, the Sarah Palin movie, and Recount, the one about the 2000 election. Um, the one show that I've been thinking about a lot lately is uh, Brain Dead, the new show from Michelle and Robert King, the, the good wife showrunners. And uh, they've had a couple of moments where they've made reference to Trump. And so th- that mixture of sci-fi and political satire would seem to lend itself well to that form of political commentary. I mean, I think that's something that if the show gets picked up and continues, that it might lend itself well to political commentary on our process right now. But um in a way, yeah, it's either too absurd or too obvious for a lot of shows to want to deal with. And I, I kind of wonder if a sense of exhaustion is going to set in for some of these political shows and um, that we might go in a somewhat different direction. Yeah, it's almost like when, you know, people talk about having a film or a television show about a war that's, you know, or they're currently going on or just just ended. You say like, you know, I just I don't want to confront that. And not to equate war to this year that's going too far, but there is a sense of like, you know, I've gotten the real thing. I don't need to see anything else. I'm, I'm done with that. Yeah, it's uh, it's part of my feeling at this point is is people don't want it to bleed into their entertainment and that they're, they're going to seek um, an escape from Donald Trump and Trumpism and everything else. Which is a fascinating full circle then, because of course, Trump, you know, coming from the world of entertainment then bleeds into our politics and kind of ruins it all for us. So what does that leave us with? That's a good question. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe that's a good point to end on. So, uh, so thanks for taking time out to talk with us, Chuck. You've helped, uh, at least you've helped keep things in perspective for me, I think. You bet. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Oh my God, Chris, I just had to call back. So many things have happened since we talked. I was feeling somewhat optimistic before about cable news, but now I'm convinced that it is a dumpster fire threatening to engulf our entire political system. And then there's the Trump can't swim meme and the Trump tacos meme and the fact that everyone finally stopped attacking Hillary for not holding press conferences. It just, it just never, never stops. Oh my God, Chris. Oh my God. Now we have these crazy baskets full of deplorables. Oh, geez. Oh, man. Oh, I'm just... Oh, screw it. Um, oh, well. Well, Chuck, maybe, Michael, you are right. Maybe thinking about this is just... Yeah. Oh, man. It's like every single day. It's just another turd ball that just... Yeah, and we appear to have destroyed Chuck Tryon. So, you know, at least we still have his work to read, which you can find links to his work at our website, aga-media.org. Sorry, buddy. Yeah, good luck recovering after November 8th, Chuck. It is really fascinating, though. You know, you know, both of us came into this field working historically and trying to make sense of film industry, but then, you know, particularly television in the post-war era, those first couple of decades, when television was an incredibly powerful normative institution, right, that that um, had very high barriers to entry, and, and it didn't speak to or for everyone, not even remotely, but there was at least this sense of um, a kind of collective conversation that was going on. Right. And... When you look at what what's happening with cable news and with and with the other kinds of sites where where people find political information, there is just no there's not it's not even imaginable that we can have a kind of consensus conversation about about uh, political matters. And that makes me wonder: How do we get outside of that? How do we get beyond that? How do we put things back together again? And I that's where I that's where I do like chalk, and I just say I don't. Yeah. I just yeah. I don't it's, know. It's a very difficult problem. Yeah. Well, uh, we will be looking further ahead in subsequent Acamedia episodes. As I said, we've got two more interviews coming up. Maybe Sanjeet and Susan can help us uh, put things back together again. We're going to end up putting a lot of pressure on them. <laughs> right. Man, yeah. By the time we get to Susan's interview, it's going to be... 
Oh, boy. Dig us out. <laughs> right, exactly. We'll have to warn her about yeah. that. But uh, now that we've looked forward a bit, we're going to look back, and we're going to return to the Field Notes series, the SCMS Field Notes series, which is um, a project that conducts, circulates, and archives interviews with pioneers of film and media studies. We've done done a number of these, and they just this summer put up a whole bunch of new ones, uh, interviews with Vivian Sobchak, John Caldwell, Thomas Waugh as examples. And so we uh, plucked one off of there. Joel Neville Anderson uh, uh, plucked the Constance Penley interview. She's interviewed by Elena Gorfinkel. And he edited this down a bit. And so you're going to hear the first, uh, it was about the first 30 minutes of Elena Gorfinkel's Field Notes interview with Constance Penley. Check it out. So, Connie, I want to ask you a kind of foundational question, which is, what drew you to the study of film in particular? Because I know it wasn't necessarily a direct route, from what I understand. What were the formative films, books, and articles that enlivened your interest in film? Thank you for that question, Elena. And I'm so glad to be doing the interview with you because I feel such a connection with your work and your interests. And this is perfect. I grew up in rural Florida, and I didn't see a lot of movies except for the Saturday afternoon matinees. For some reason, my mother uh, decided that the films that all my girl cousins liked, uh, Gigi, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, would be bad for me. Uh, and so she had no problem, though, with my going to Saturday matinee horror films. So The Blob, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, so those, those were really the first films that I saw. I must say, I never saw The Blob all the way through <laughs> because that scene in the trailer of The Blob oozing through the projection booth window toward the unexpected audience members so traumatized me that I didn't see The Blob until I was an adult. And I, I think maybe that's where my interest in the unconscious and cinema came from. Uh, I also uh, saw films like Creature from the Black Lagoon. And those early experiences really shaped me. I mean, with Creature from the Black Lagoon, for example, and the underwater scenes were filmed in Florida. Um, and I, I actually tell this story in my seminar, Theory and Practice of Popular Culture, uh, because it says a lot about what people can think with popular culture. Um, so I and my siblings and all the neighbor kids, we lived on this little lake. We went to the Saturday afternoon matinee of Creature from the Black Lagoon. The rule had been uh, that we weren't allowed to go in the lake more than four times a day. Because otherwise we would have just lived in the lake and grown gills and, you know, so we had, that meant we had to come out at least four times a day, right? So my siblings, my, uh, the neighbor kids, we all went to see the matinee of Creature from the Black Lagoon. We did not go in the lake for the next three weeks. <laughs> And Powerful. then, uh, yes. And then, <laughs> without talking about it, I mean, it must have been completely tacit. Yes. Just all of a sudden, we went back in the lake, mm -hmm. and here's how we did it: we divided up the lake uh, into our own lagoons, <laughs> and we were each the creature of our own black lagoon, <laughs> and that's how we that's how we um, uh, managed it. You know, so we were you know, using our trauma, you know, from, from this film to, and again, I, as I said, we never talked about it, but we just figured out how to master the trauma and be able to get back in the lake. Mm -hmm. To reoccupy that space. To right? be able to reoccupy that space as, as, our, as our own. But also, in a sense, occupying the film yes. as well. So. so I didn't see films uh, until I was off at college at the University of Florida. And there I had probably the most formative experience of film uh, that, I've, that I had. Uh, 
went to the student union uh, to see this film there at the University of Florida, uh, to see this film um, uh, called Pierre Le Fou, you know, by some guy named Godard, you know. And I, I knew it was a film because it was advertised as a film. Um, I went to see it on a screen in a theater, but I just remember stumbling out of the theater into the warm, humid Florida night. <laughs> I was baffled. I had no idea how what I'd seen was a film. You know, and of course later I would come to learn so much about Godard. I mean we did a triple issue on Godard of Camera Obscura. Right. And so I knew things, you know, like his saying when asked, do you think a film should have a beginning, a middle, and an end? And what was his reply? <laughs> yes, but not necessarily <laughs> no, no, in that no, no, order. Right. So I learned all that later, but trying to understand how that thing that I had just seen up there on the screen was a film, trying to answer that question, and by the way, I'm still trying to answer it today, <laughs> completely shaped me. You know, and that's one of the things I've, I know about myself, that if I come up against something that completely baffles me, mm -hmm. that's where I go. Mm -hmm. You know, I have to figure it out. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, that's a very encouraging and uh, for, for everyone that we return to the same kind of formative questions. Um, I wanted to move to asking you about your formal education. You've mentioned going to University of Florida, and because oh, this is home about of the Fighting Gators, yes, the Go Gators, right? <laughs> um, and so, I'm curious about your movement from going to Florida, then going getting an MA in rhetoric at mm -hmm. UC Berkeley, and then going to France and Paris and studying with Christian Metz and Thierry Kunzel, and, and then coming Raymond back Bellure. and Raymond Bellure. Yeah. Of course, mm -hmm. you've done so much uh, amazing work. Um, and kind of curated his work. Uh, and so I'm wondering how, you know, that trajectory and kind of what motivated you to go to Berkeley first. I mean, I know the politically it must have been a draw to go there. Yes. Um, but I'm curious about that trajectory. Could you talk about that a bit? Yes. Uh, I was supposed to be a Florida high school teacher. That's what I, an English teacher. That's what I trained in. Uh, but I, I knew that I had to get the hell out of the South. Mm -hmm. And that's what I wanted to do. I, a lot of people think that I went to Berkeley to go to graduate school, but I didn't. You know, <laughs> I went there to live because I wanted to go to the most radical place, the <laughs> farthest away I could get. And mm -hmm. you know, it was Berkeley. Yeah. So, and so uh, with, I'm not making this up, you know, I had, Abby Hoffman steal this book, you know, and I, you know, he gave three ways for how you could stow away on an airplane. Yes, and so uh, with a girlfriend named, I'm not kidding, Thelma, <laughs> I stowed away on an airplane <laughs> to Los Angeles, and then we hitched up to Berkeley, and uh, and. There, I, I did every job under the sun. I uh, hung out at the Pacific Film Archive. I, I sat in on every lecture I could possibly sit in on, especially any lecture on structuralism or semiotics, which I had actually started learning about uh, back at the University of Florida. So I was just living there, and then, um, interning at the Pacific Film Archive so I could get in and see free movies. Tom Luddy, who was in the director of the Pacific Film Archive, uh, knew that uh, Siwa Bay and Sony Salyer had just brought women in film uh, up from Los Angeles, and mm. he'd given them a little office in the Pacific Film Archive. Mm. Uh, and so uh, four of us who were all working uh, at the archive, um, uh, he put us together. You know, and so that's uh, when we started working on women in film, uh, and then uh, the four of us who started—Sandy Flitterman and Janet Bergstrom and Liz Lyon and I—you um, know—we eventually spun off uh, 
camera obscura from women in film. But the, but the um, excitement uh, of, of that, you know, I mean, it was like, well, one friend of mine, Steve Fagan, said, <laughs> you grew up in Berkeley, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and it was like, I got to do it all over again, to, to mm -hmm. grow up in the most radical place, the farthest away mm -hmm. I, can, I can get. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about uh, the relationship uh, in, in terms of the fields between the development of feminist film theory and um, film studies, academic film studies, because mm -hmm. you were very much in, in mm -hmm. the mix in that mm -hmm. moment. Um, and you have said I, you, I've, uh, in an, another interview that no other humanities discipline has been as shaped by feminism than film studies. And that's a very powerful statement that I think we should yeah. pause on. And I, I wanted you to elaborate on this and to think about that particular moment, um, perhaps recollecting on what was that moment like in the intersection of early feminist yeah. work and then early film, the kind of the development uh, of early yeah. film studies. Okay, time travel, <laughs> going back, mm -hmm. going back in time. I love it when uh, uh, young scholars, young women, uh, come up to me and ask, where did you go to school to study feminist film theory? Right, right. <laughs> and I have to say, it didn't exist. We had to make it up. And uh, we, we had to, I mean, how do, you, how do you create a field? And by the way, you don't even know you're creating a field at the time. You're just doing what you're feeling passionate about. But you create it by, you have to, you have to uh, uh, start the journals, you have to organize film festivals and conferences, and you just have to get the conversation going. Um, I think one of the reasons why I um, went into film was because uh, it was so new, you know, uh, in the academy. Mm -hmm. uh, and also I was, you know, I should have, if I were in graduate school, I should have gone into English, you know, but um, uh, because that's what I've been trained to do. But I, I was much more interested in film because so many more people, you know, saw films where you know, I felt, you know, uh, I mean, this is kind of the, uh, a very populist moment for me, I think. You know, uh, I saw film uh, as having an ability to get across feminist and so many other ideas, you know, just as a larger, uh, more popular medium uh, than literature. And so uh, that was one of the reasons why. I also think that one of the reasons why I wanted to go into it was because it was such a new field. Mm -hmm. So that meant that you could help create it. And also, mm -hmm. it wasn't automatically male dominated, mm -hmm. you know, so mm -hmm. this, new, this new field. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so that was that was kind of the way that was kind of the way it came together for me because I I wanted to be involved uh, in a medium uh, that was going to uh, you know be really open to feminism and I thought should be influenced by feminism. I mean, if I have one project, I want to make feminism popular. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that was one of the reasons for going, for going into, into film and into coming into film through developing a feminist analysis of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk about some of, those, uh, some of that work that, uh, that you were doing, as, and you mentioned um, both uh, women in film and the beginnings of Camera Obscura. And so this year, not coincidentally, is the 40-year anniversary of the journal, um, and of which you were a founding member. And so I wanted you to tell us about the beginnings of the journal um, and its relationship to other the other kind of journal out of which you came. And you were working as an associate editor, which was women in film. And um, can you speak about also the collective process that was involved in, mm -hmm. and what, what were the motivating questions um, that uh, led you to, to form the journal um, with your collaborators? 
I think when I'm about 80, <laughs> if I get there, I, I think then I might be able to write the story, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. of, of what it was like mm -hmm. uh, to be able to uh, uh, form a collective, a feminist collective, work together in that way uh, at a time when we had no models, mm -hmm. you know, of how you could possibly do work across activism and academe. You know, so it was all a grand experiment. Uh, I am, um, I think it says a lot that the 40th anniversary issue of Camera Obscura, uh, two issues in fact, uh, are around the theme of collectivity. Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, that today, that is still uh, a, a formative notion mm -hmm. behind what we do. Mm -hmm. The idea uh, and maybe especially now when, you know, we live in this neoliberal world that's all about individuals and you can't even, you know, uh, you know uh, any kind of social or socialist uh, democratic kind of organizing is poo-pooed, although hoping that's changing <laughs> now that it's possible to say the S word again, right. socialism, <laughs> now that it's possible to say Maybe capitalism isn't such a great thing. <laughs> right. It's I mean, not it's the pretty, only option. It's yeah, so, so that was, um, uh, so that has been a thread running through all of it. You know, how do you organize yourselves in democratic, collaborative mm -hmm. ways? Mm -hmm. So was there a particular break with women in film in terms of just the kinds of questions that women in film was asking mm -hmm. and that Camera Obscura wanted mm -hmm. to ask, or was there... Um, uh, Everybody thinks there's a really there's a break, juicy a dramatic story there. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, I mean, of course, you've never seen any kind of political project mm -hmm. schism, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> and you know, split up and go many different ways. And the answer to your question is both juicier and less juicy mm -hmm. uh, than than you might think. Mm -hmm. um, women in film was. Um, uh, you know, very much uh, devoted to um, doing an archaeology of women in film. Like, how do we, how do we discover our our history? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and our our history as filmmakers, but also our history in writing about and organizing around film. Uh, and that was such a vital project. Mm -hmm. And so, when the four of us were brought on board as um, associate uh, editors of uh, Women in Film. We did that for uh, two years. The reason, and, and this has been written about as, mm -hmm. you know, the camera obscura editors, you know, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> you know, left Women in Film, mm -hmm. and when they did it, it killed the journal, mm -hmm. you know, and they went on to do this, um, you know, elitist high theory project. Mm -hmm. um, and killed, did I say, women in film, you know. And that's not at all what mm -hmm. happened. I mean, women in mm -hmm. film did end, but that, right. you know. Um, what we wanted and were not finding mm -hmm. with women in film was that, yes, we were as interested in women in film in doing that archaeology of women in mm -hmm. cinema, mm -hmm. but we were all influenced by, uh, we were all fascinated with uh, uh, continental theory. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we would all go on to study in the Paris Film Program. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, but we wanted to do, we wanted to do something, a more theoretical project, mm -hmm. but we also wanted to work together collectively. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, oh, here's a pretty juicy part of the story. <laughs> so when the split happened, when we knew mm -hmm. that we were unhappy and we wanted to do something, mm. we went into mediation. Mm. This is so Berkeley. <laughs> we found a, a, like someone who is considered the best mediator, uh, a nun who had mediated, I mean, all kinds of labor issues, 
uh, and labor and management issues, but also mediating between nuns and priests. Uh, so we all went to these mediation sessions. And the conclusion uh, of the mediation session was that cam uh, camera obscura, that women in film uh, was organized basically just like Exxon or any other <laughs> corporate entity, you mm -hmm. know, and uh, we weren't, in fact, going mm -hmm. to be able ever to work collectively, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know, and so uh, that's how we ended up uh, leaving women in film and going off uh, to start Camera Obscura. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. It's interesting. It becomes a labor issue in a way about the you organization know, of it. Over, <laughs> yeah. I, I want to say something about mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, when there have been um, splits mm -hmm. in, in camera obscura, uh, a lot of people might think that they were ideological mm -hmm. splits. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, and they weren't, mm -hmm. you know, and almost always it was around labor issues and, you know, because we're a collective and, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. how are you going to, uh, you know, make it possible to get everything done mm -hmm. while still having that collaborative focus and um, so that's, you know, that, that's mm -hmm. always been a big struggle. Mm -hmm. As it still is for us in our field. As it still is for us. So the balancing. In, yeah. in, in all of our fields. Mm -hmm. But again, mm -hmm. we didn't have any models for how to do this. Mm -hmm. You know, because it had, never, it had never been done. And I mean, when you think back, I mean, I, in my entire graduate career, for example, I had half a woman professor. You know, mm -hmm. she was in, uh, you know, half in one department and half in my department, you know. Mm -hmm. So... There were just, you know, so many uh, uh, obstacles to even thinking about how you could work together collaboratively. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And again, across activism and academia, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. we really had no models for mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk a bit about, um, I mean, you've talked a bit about the, the, the moment of kind of the kind of semiotics and psychoanalysis and structuralism being a very like a strong draw, but you make this move in your in your study right from moving from thinking about the avant-garde and kind of the film language um, and and going to more popular cultural forms and studying uh, television, looking at the cultural production of fans, um, and looking and moving to talk about you know, moving to talk about slash and science mm -hmm. fiction. Um, and in popular science. And so I'm wondering kind of, you know, how you think about that transition or just the kind of move, moving from what seemed to be very kind of different bodies of knowledge and methods and objects. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you wanted mm -hmm. to talk about um, uh, in terms of your own, your own work, kind of how, how you, uh, kind of what objects fascinated you and how that, that, that shift occurred. Not that it was a dramatic kind of one necessarily, but yes. there's obviously a continuum, but yes. I'm curious to hear about. I, for me, the continuum mm -hmm. uh, is that I, I think I've had, I have been so lucky in my career. Mm -hmm. I have managed to get away with just following my fascinations. Mm -hmm. You know, and you know, um, I, I I never even thought of it as a research trajectory. Mm -hmm. You know, and sometimes I felt as if I'm like a, you know, little puppy out on a walk. You know, and it's like sniff, 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 <laughs> sniff, sniff. You know, and it's just and just like, oh, this looks good. I'm going to go and find out what that, what's going on there. You know, and so, uh, and and somehow I've, uh, as I say, I've been able to. Um, I've been able to get away with it. <laughs> so the, I think, I think one of the, one of the threads has been, uh, well, working on the avant-garde mm -hmm. was so critical to our early thinking in Camera Obscura because, um, 
I mean, I remember Umberto Eco saying uh, once, if you want to change an object, you better know everything about how it's constituted and how it works. Mm -hmm. And so um, we set about, a, you know, it was a kind of simultaneous study of uh, the avant-garde and Hollywood, and the avant-garde and classical cinema. And so we knew we wanted to change Hollywood. We knew we wanted to change um, uh, classical cinema. Uh, and so, you know, we knew we had to know everything about classical cinema, uh, but we also had to be able to look toward women who were experimenting with film. So our early issues, you know, on, uh, you know, on Jackie Raynal and Yvonne Rayner, you know, just trying to, and we weren't, we weren't ever looking for uh, uh, an essence of mm -hmm. feminism, mm -hmm. you know, in film, you know, or a feminist film aesthetic, mm -hmm. you know, but it was always how can we as feminists experiment through film, through writing, you know, to try to to change things, to try mm -hmm. to come up with, a, a, you know, new kinds of cinema. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting the connections between the practices of writing, or the, the idea of experimenting both at the level of the scholarship, because we often think of yeah. in such we get kind of clouded by a sense of you know we must be very objective, and that that element of looking really closely at the text. And the, the, the political stakes of close analysis, I think, get lost sometimes in yes. certain narrations of this moment. And yes. I think the political stakes of looking very closely at the text are really important. But also, I think it's so interesting to look back at that moment in writing and think about it through the question of like the creative labor of scholarship, too. And I think your comments kind of speak to that. Um, uh, so it's interesting then to say, to say then, OK, like, the, there's the the question of fe like female-made films and mm -hmm. the kind of the avant-garde and kind of thinking of a new language and we know that you know that the call that you know Mulvey makes and and uh, you know her her essay for kind of look, seeking another kind of cinema but I think there's also this way that your move to thinking about slash and fan cultures is really an, another way of engaging with female spectatorship and desire, mm -hmm. obviously. And so yeah. I'm curious if you wanted to say, like, so that moving from that moment to kind of what, you know, what was it that in the sniffing walk yeah. that fascinated you about, fan, you know, fan culture and yeah. um, uh, kind of what, what was the encounter yeah. that led you to, to Slash yeah. in particular? Whoa. That's a big... <laughs> There's so many ways I could answer that. Mm -hmm. let, me, let, me, let me try it this way. And then maybe, maybe I can try it some other ways. But in my cultural chain of being now, I think of film, Hollywood film, but also international film, and in many ways, mm -hmm. what's called independent film. Uh, I think of that as elite popular culture. <laughs> I think about television which became so huge in our field. I mean, that was like, that. In, if we want to look at Society for Cinema and Media Studies, but also our, our field, mm -hmm. that interruption, that television, and the, and the feminist study of television brought to our field mm -hmm. with Consoling Passions. Right. You know, the organiza Organization of Consoling Passions is trying to find a place in our field to be able to work on of feminism and television and video, you know, so that was, that was very important. Okay, so film, elite popular culture. <laughs> television, popular culture. Right. Pornography, right. very popular, popular culture. <laughs> I see uh, my work now as I, I, I've become so much more interested in television and, of course, feminist television viewers, which led to my work on mm -hmm. female media uh, mm -hmm. fan culture, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, in pornography. And I find in television and uh, pornography, I find so many more of the issues and constituents that I care about. Mm -hmm.
than in film. Mm -hmm. So I guess, you know, once, once again, uh, um, I just see this, this populist streak, mm -hmm. you know, in, in my work. Mm -hmm. and, and by the way, even going back to when Camera Obscura split off from women in film, mm -hmm. you know, and we were kind of portrayed as elitist high theory, but think about what I was saying about our desire, yes, to do something more theoretical, but to do it in a collective manner. You know, so we wanted to try to democratize mm -hmm. our, our work, our mm -hmm. approach. Mm -hmm. you know, and so, we, you know, that, was, so it was a, that was one of our impulses there, too. Mm -hmm. If you would like to hear the rest of that talk, you can head to the Field Notes website. We will link to that on our website, aka-media.org. So thank you to the Field Notes team, led by Heidi Wasson, with the help of a committee comprised of Patrice Petro and Barbara Klinger. And that Field Notes series is sponsored both by SCMS and Arthemis, a Concordia University-based research team investigating the history and epistemology of moving image studies. This is a really good project, and it's I think it's the kind of thing that's going to continue to pay dividends down the line. It's going to be really nice to have these these interviews in the bag. Uh, there's some great stuff, some great some great uh, history of the field, and it's really interesting to hear some of these scholars talk about about the moments that got them excited and and the the projects that got their that captured their interest. Well, I think it's really inspirational because these are some of the most important scholars to have ever studied film and television, and to hear them talk in such a down to earth way about their process and getting their start and their inspiration and all that. It's just kind of, you know, it really makes real the kind of work that they've, that they've done. Yep. So give it a listen. Speaking of places to access things, natural segue That's there. That's a good segue. We wanted to plug that uh, you can find Acamedia in SoundCloud now. I'm not sure if anyone knows that. And I know SoundCloud is a place a lot of audio files like to uh, go to. So SoundCloud. Also, we don't have any iTunes reviews. We are Give on iTunes. And, you know, every time we run into people at conferences, they're like, oh, we really love Acamedia. So... Because reviews help other people find us. Right, yeah. So uh, so give us a review. Uh, you know, maybe list some of your favorite episodes to, to guide people to some past episodes. Because this is episode 32. 32. So, yeah, so we've got quite the I archive. I was thinking about going on and, and adding um, some reviews of my own, but I mm. thought that might be a little... Okay. Well, you know, not <laughs> right. quite right. Right. We want to be ethical. Like, we yeah. want to be above board here at Academy. It's like filling out your own course evaluations or something. It just right. seems a little uncool. Right. Uh, so, yeah. So give us an honest review. And even if there's, you know, suggestions, things you uh, wish we would improve upon, you can either post that on iTunes or, of course, you can always email us at info at aka-media.org. So give us your feedback. That's right. We're also on Twitter. We are at aka. Once again. I got it this time. At Aka underscore media on Twitter. Critique should come in private and via email and praise should be posted publicly. I, I think, think that's, that's a reasonable rule, right? That's a sound policy, yeah, I okay, think. Yes. Aka Media is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame and the Department of Communications at Denison University. And we also couldn't do this without a grant from SCMS. Our work depends upon the labor of an awful lot of folks other than just us. I want to particularly thank Todd Thompson, whose golden years make it all sound good, down at the University of Texas, as well as Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison University. And we also greatly appreciate the ongoing help of Joel Neville Anderson at University of Rochester and Stephanie Brown at University of Illinois. And thank you and sorry again to Chuck Tryon. Yeah, Chuck, I, well, sorry, buddy. And thanks to, to the Field Notes team and Constance Penley. All right, we'll return next month to try to make some more election sense for you all. Happy September. Happy September.